This is important that we do this correctly. Imagine there's really dramatic music in the background. No, not that kind of dramatic. More, no, no, uh, more contemplative. Uh, like, like a something like that. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, imagine there's music. I want to read to you quote from an anonymous internet philosopher by the name of DSFD BK9E. The shopping cart is the ultimate can you go to the next slide for me please? The shopping cart is the ultimate litmus test for whether a person is capable of self-governing. To return the shopping cart is an easy convenient task, and one which we all recognize as the correct, appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. Simultaneously, it is not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, The shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. No one will punish you for not returning the shopping cart. No one will fine you or kill you for not returning the shopping cart. You gain nothing from returning the shopping cart. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your own heart. You must return the shopping cart because it is the right thing to do. Because it is correct. A person who is unable to do this is no better than an animal. An absolute savage who can only be made to do what is right by threatening them with a law and the force that stands behind it. The shopping cart is what determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. Of course, this all falls apart if you shop at Aldi's. Will you turn the lights back on for me? Thank you. That's supposed to be way more dramatic and cooler. Uh, As my first Sunday back preaching to you uh, in years, I feel like it was best to start a little theatrical, but it didn't quite go as planned, which 
That's okay. But Aldi's really does put a kink in my, uh, my analogy here because they have the whole quarter return the cart system. And that is kind of a lot of, unless you're willing to sacrifice a quarter, which, I mean, honestly, with inflation, it's hardly worth anything now. I, I found this funny, this quote funny and interesting. It was read by a British guy on an Instagram reel when I found it. It's way more convincing if you have a British accent. I thought about trying to fake one, but as I was practicing, I decided that was probably against better judgment. <laughs> I should have had Megan read it in a Scottish accent. That would have been convincing for sure. So this week, we are starting a series on integrity. It's going to be three or four weeks, depending on how I feel, the last one. But it'll be a few weeks long. And in my mind, integrity sums up a lot of different and difficult practices, but they're simple qualities. The ability to discern what is right, to desire to follow through on that right action, even if it is difficult or would cost you a great deal. It is also the quality of choosing what is right when there is no pressure to do so. Hence the reading of this funny quote in Lightning about the shopping cart. There's, I think Stanford did a whole thing on the, like a study on shopping carts and who returns them and who doesn't and who's a psychopath and who's not. Just kidding. Really, um, putting the shopping cart back is a silly example of integrity. And I would say actually it doesn't really have much bearing on your life, although if you don't return the shopping cart, what does that really say about you? Just, you know. Anyway, let's get to weightier matters. The shopping cart, let's leave that in the past. Let's talk about something more real, like our faith. What do we do when no one is looking? Do we follow God's desires even when we can seemingly get away with another option? What if we are pressured to do something that we know contradicts God's desires? How do we conduct ourselves in fairness when taking advantage would be easy? Do we tell the truth when a lie would be more convenient? Do we struggle to find the right ways to do things? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at living with integrity, both in our spiritual lives and in the conduct of how we carry ourselves in everyday life, which is, of course, in my opinion, inextricably tied to our faith. We will look at biblical principles to help us form this picture of integrity, and we'll be looking at biblical examples to help us encourage us to that end so that we can stand with integrity. Go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at today. So the book of Daniel follows on the best king of Israel, Josiah, uh, the second king, second best maybe. He was a good king. He wasn't even the first or second. But he was a good king. A great king, even. And he ruled over the southern half of Israel, at this time known as Judah. And when Josiah died, that led to a lot of turmoil. Judah was in tough straits, and a few of his sons ended up uh, becoming king and dying or being exiled, and it was a mess. Eventually, Jehoiakim comes into the seat of power. And during the reign of Jehoiakim, the nation of Babylon conquers Judah. Now, this was not a surprise, should have been a surprise for the people of Israel, because God had been speaking about this for a very long time, warning his people that if they continued to break his covenants, 
that he was going to put them into exile by the hand of another nation. That's exactly what happened when Babylon took over Judah. And it was under the reign of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Something to understand about this time in history is when you conquer a country, you took the spoils of that country. Of course, there's the physical spoils like gold and treasure, but there's also the human capital, the human value of that country. Often women and children would be sold into slavery, and the smartest minds would be taken and used for the betterment of the victorious kingdom. Sometimes these higher-up people in society, just the wealthy, the, the notable, would be taken essentially as prizes by the king, saying, hey, look, I have taken your most noteworthy people, and they are merely just a trophy on my shelf. Your country is nothing compared to my country. So that's exactly where Daniel finds himself, a subject to a foreign nation. Let's read the verse seven verses together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now this is a total sacrilege. It's, it's taking the things meant for the temple and putting them in the house of another God. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of Israel's, the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. This is common practice. Bring the richest, most powerful people and youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of exercise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to serve in the king's court. Luckily, I don't think I'd be a part of that group if he took over. Uh, so I would have been fine. I would have just been left to tend the fields or something. He ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and ordered them that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, super fun to say, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So as a smart conquering king should do, he takes the best of the conquered country for his own. As a smart king should do, he promotes his own country's cultures and preferences and tries to eradicate the others so that he can bring unity to his empire. And so as a part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan to do that, he takes the best and brightest young men and essentially enlists them into a three-year Babylonian propaganda program where he's trying to convince them to be Babylonian. He does this so that he can erase their Jewish identities. And the other nations he conquered, he does the same thing with those young men. And he wants to replace their identity with a Babylonian one. So Daniel and his friends were in a very, very difficult situation and they faced at least three major pressures or oppressions and struggles here that we just read about. Perhaps four, and we'll get to that in a second. So the first thing that they are encountering is that they are forced to participate in the king's educational program. They were forced to learn a new language. They were forced to read Babylonian manuscripts, learn their laws, things that would 
be difficult for a Jewish person to comprehend because they were against what God had said is correct. Then they were being bribed, essentially, by being offered the king's best. The goal of this is to hope the hope of this for the king is so that these men become accustomed to the luxury of the king's house so that they wouldn't want to leave it so that they would stay in the king's good graces essentially as a bribe like hey i'm going to treat you really well if you listen to me if you're on my side i'm going to take really good care of you the romans were really good at this they had two hands one hand is here is everything good that i can offer you the other hand is Here's a sword that I can offer you. And that's kind of the situation that Daniel and his friends were in in Babylon. Be nice or die, essentially. The third thing that was happening to these young men is that they were given new names. Daniel is a Hebrew name. That means God is my judge. But now he was called Belteshazzar. Bel is the Babylonian word for lord or master and is often referred to as um, the Babylonian gods. So... Belteshazzar means Bel is the protector of his life. So he goes from being God as my judge to these foreign gods are the protector of my life. That's my new name. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach means the command of Aku. Aku is the Babylonian moon god. Mishael means who is what is God is. So who God is, I am going to be. The name Meshach means who Aku is, is who I am. The name Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. The new name Abednego means the servant of Nabo. And Nabo is the second highest god in the Babylonian pantheon. There's perhaps a fourth way that they were under duress or stressed out, pressured in this situation. We don't have clear evidence to this, but there is a good chance they were made eunuchs. This is pretty common practice for slaves in the king's courts to be eunuchs, especially ones coming from other countries. And also Ashpenaz, who is the, the chief of the officials. Actually, the word officials is eunuchs, the chief of the king's eunuchs. Um, so perhaps Daniel and his friends were made eunuchs against their will. And there is some evidence to this, perhaps. Uh, Daniel was never married. He never had children. So we don't know for sure, but this is a potential another thing that they are up against. So I tell you all this stuff. I, I want to paint this picture so that you understand they were under this immense pressure. They were under this almost unbearable weight. And on top of that, they faced that the king could execute them at any time, at will, for no reason. And then you start bringing in, on top of that, the trauma of being ripped from your homeland, ripped from your families, ripped from your freedom... Many of them probably lost loved ones. People they knew were killed in the siege. And there's no hope of ever returning. Just imagine the weight of all of that. We just need to feel that, understand that, kind of walk in their shoes, so that when we see the resilience and the integrity of Daniel and his friends, it becomes even more inspiring. Let's continue reading. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the command of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, 
I am afraid of my lord the king, who has allotted you food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking gaunt in the comparison to the youths who are of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So Ashpenaz is like, nah, brah, if you don't eat the king's food, I'm going to get killed. So if he's going to get killed, probably they're going to get killed too. So Daniel was offered the king's food and drink, but he refuses, most likely because it's breaking God's commands if he were to partake in that food. Often, meat in this day was sacrificed to gods as idols and then distributed. Most likely this was me sacrificed to idols and then given to the king's uh, men. Then also, most likely partaking of this meat would have broken many Jewish food laws, which Daniel knew he was supposed to keep. So, Nebuchadnezzar, against his best efforts, could not remove Daniel from God. So, Daniel and his friends are in this tough situation. What would you do if the king offered you this food and you knew that it was wrong against God's commands for you to do so? I think there are so many ways to justify this. Just imagine, think in your head, if you were Daniel and his friends, how would you justify the situation so that eating this food would be easier? I would say, perhaps, everyone else is doing this. I'm just going to, you know, not risk the punishment. I'm just going to eat this food. It's probably delicious anyway. They could have said, well, we aren't priests. We're no one special. We aren't these high up people in Israel. We're just normal guys. God is going to understand and forgive us. They could have brought up David's example even, maybe came to mind, where he was starving and he ate the showbread. That's against Jewish law. Maybe God would allow them to break these food commandments in this dire situation. Maybe you would lose your faith altogether. How could God let us be here? How could God let us be in this situation? Maybe he's not real at all. Maybe he's abandoned us, so I am going to abandon him and do what I think is best to survive. Maybe you would say something like, it's just food, it's not a big deal. There are other more important things. I can imagine these kinds of excuses because I've made these kinds of excuses, by the way, in situations that are way less pressured. (laughs) I've just justified doing what I want to do against better judgment, against what is right, just because of my selfishness and my sin. We are very good at justifying ourselves into almost any action if we really make up our minds. That is right, Chuck. We need to really reconcile that. No one wants to think about themselves poorly. No one wants to think that they've dropped their integrity and left it behind. But we do. We all fail. I would guess that you could come up with some pretty good excuses, probably even more creative ones than I did. I'm wondering if you've ever said things similar to this when you've faced choices. Have you thought about different options? Let's continue reading and see what happens. Look at verse 11. Daniel said to the overseer whom the, the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please put your servants to the test for ten days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and put them to the test for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, I think I could accomplish that part. So to the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and keep giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every kind of literature and expertise. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So God favored them and allowed them to stand in integrity and blessed them for that integrity. From here, Daniel goes on to be one of the most powerful and influential people in the kingdom. Something that would not have happened had he abandoned God and took the easy way out. We also see other times in the book of Daniel where these men face insurmountable odds, it seems, and stand in the face of power and say, No, this is what is right. I'm going to do it whether you kill me or not. So whether we see it immediately or we don't see it until the next age, integrity is always the right choice. Integrity makes a difference, but that does not make it easy. Let's think critically about the story and let's try to draw some things out of it, some nuggets, so that we can walk away here feeling filled with spiritual nuggets. I love chicken nuggets. You can dip yours in honey mustard if you want. Who's a honey mustard ranch? Person. Honey mustard person? Ranch? Barbecue? Okay. Interesting. We should have a conversation later, Jillian. I think you need deliverance. No. Honestly, I do like fries and frosties. It's a good time. <laughs> I have to try it. I won't, I won't deny you outright until I give it a shot. Okay. So... One of the things that we see in here is that at some point, you are going to have to draw the line. Daniel and his friends bent when they could bend. They didn't put up a fight against learning a new language or learning the king's rules or serving in the king's palace even. They didn't seek death over uh, serving a foreign government. But they decided, they they knew there was a place where they had to draw the line. And when it came to explicitly breaking God's commands, they said, okay, this is enough. I can't go any further from here. And so, they draw the line. I think that's that's clearly demonstrated in in this story. Another thing. Can you go to the next slide? I want us to realize that the right choice, integrity, taking the choice of integrity, does not equal deliverance from your situation. So Daniel and his friends did the right thing. They stood up for what they believed is true. However, they were still in captivity. They were still enslaved. They still stood under the pressure of King Nebuchadnezzar. Even though they made the right choice, They were not freed from their difficult situation. So integrity is doing the right thing despite of circumstances, not because you expect to get a reward for it or because you expect to be uh, taken out of these difficult things. You do it because it is the right thing to do. 
And the last thing we see is that God blesses integrity. In verse 17, God gave Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah knowledge, intelligence, and every kind of literature and expertise. And Daniel even understood visions and dreams. Things that no one else in the empire could do. God empowered him to do. He gifted him to do these things. And by that, God was made known to a nation. God was made very present in the face of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think he could only work through that because Daniel took the stand for integrity. Daniel and his friends. Listen to this promise from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now shall be if you diligently obey Yahweh your God. Be careful to do all his commands which I'm commanding you today. That Yahweh your God will put you high above all the earth. And all these blessings will come to you and reach you if you obey Yahweh your God. Blessed will you be in the city, and blessed will you be in the country. Blessed will be the children of your womb and produce of the ground, and the offspring of your animals, the newborn of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will be you when you come in, and blessed will you be when you go out. Following God comes with blessing. Now, keep in mind, Daniel and his friends were still in captivity under a foreign king. So blessing doesn't always mean easy or free or rich. In this case, they were blessed with wisdom. Sometimes blessing looks like patience to endure. Strength to continue on and do things you didn't think you could do. Or even, sometimes, a change in circumstance. So, I ask you again. What do we do when no one is looking? What do we do when we are under pressure? What do we do when we are unprepared and caught off guard? We all want to do the right thing. But we so often fail to do so. Integrity is a practice. It is something that can be learned and perfected and grow over time. And I hope you come with me over the next few weeks as we dive deeper into this topic of integrity so that we can be always making the right choices, the right decisions, standing for the things that are good in this life. I pray that this week you make obeying God's commands your priority above everything else. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for this moment we get to spend this morning learning about what you desire, being inspired to follow those desires as well. Please give us strength that we need to stand with integrity. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.